All right, thank you, worship team. That last song uh, does, it's a great, just a great uh, thing to think about what Jesus has done for us at any time, especially as we think about having communion next Sunday night at 5.30 here in the sanctuary. And I think uh, uh, our celebration choir is going to be leading in some songs, be a brief message, and uh, I think the choir is practicing today at 4.15, right, Judy? Is Judy here? Okay. And I uh, hope you'll be a part of that communion service. Uh, turn in your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11 today, thinking about the distinction between church and state. And let me say, I am being intentionally provocative, but not trying to be inflammatory. Okay, so my goal uh, today uh, is to get us to think deeply about uh, the things that Scripture teaches and how it would impact our lives today, uh, but certainly, uh, gosh, there's enough things to make people mad these days without me doing it purposefully. I'll probably do it accidentally, but um, that's what we're going to be thinking about today. We'll, we'll resume our study that we began actually last year in 2020. We took a little break in the holidays uh, from 1 Corinthians, and we're going to dive back in here in just a minute. But before I get into 1 Corinthians 6, let me preface the message today with some thoughts. These are trying days for our country and and certainly trying days for the church. There is division in the church. There is confusion. There is much disagreement, uh, disagreement, and um, uh, it's just a a trying time. Many churches are struggling, and uh, I'll tell you, many pastors are struggling, people in ministry, uh, because if you say anything about certain things, people are mad. If you don't say anything about certain things, People are mad if you say the wrong thing or the thing that someone disagrees with. And so many are paralyzed about what to say and what not to. And I will admit that even facing this today with what I felt like, how I should approach it, uh, I was wanting to take a vacation day today. And, uh, or call in sick or something. A lot has changed in the last year. And probably a year from now, we're going to look back and say a lot has changed in the past year. And uh, I'm like you. I'm, I'm, well, I hope you're like this. I hope you're struggling to understand the times as a Christian. That you're asking God for discernment about how to live in these days faithfully. I don't claim to have all the answers. In fact, we're probably going to finish today, and some of you are going to say, he didn't tell us anything. Some are going to say, I don't know what he told us, but he told us a lot. (laughs) Some will agree with some of the things. I was reading uh, my little uh, Bible reading this morning in Matthew chapter 24, and Jesus taught his disciples in this little sermon, as they're overlooking the temple, he said, there's coming a day when every one of those stones is going to be dismantled. That thing is going to be torn apart such that it's unrecognizable, and they could not believe that because it was central to their national identity. It was central to their religious life, and it shocked them. And they said, Jesus, tell us about this, this idea of of the destruction of the temple. And, And Jesus began to teach about the future, that there would be political upheavals, 
And, and one of the questions about Matthew 24 is how far out was Jesus looking? And I think it's a panoramic breadth of all of the rest of human history is what I think. But he says in the future there's going to be political upheavals. There is going to be the rise and fall of nations. Nations will battle against nations. There's going to be widespread fracturing and degradation of society in the family unit. And he warned his disciples, and you must be vigilant. You must stay awake. You must be alert. And he even said there's coming a day when there will be false Christs, people claiming to be the Savior. And so there will be false hopes. And he says, don't go after them. And then to his disciples, and here's what resonated with me coming to this sermon today. He says, beginning in verse 45, Matthew 24, Who then is the faithful and wise servant, whom his master has set over his household, to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed, and he begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him into pieces, and will put him with the hypocrites. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus says, To you who I am calling to be my servants, you must be faithful. You're accountable to me. You're my servant. And I thought about how difficult it is in these days seemingly to preach when people are easily inflamed and provoked. And let me just say something to you. I am not called to carry water for anybody except Jesus. Okay? And I'm going to be accountable to Him. And that scares me more than anything else. And that's a proper fear, a fear of the Lord. I'm not called to beat up on other Christians. That's what he says. He said, when I come, he said, I better not find you beating up my other servants. I'm not called to beat you all up or anybody else. I'm not called to carry water for anybody else but Jesus. I'm not called to live a life of Empty pleasures, called to be Jesus' servant in this day. And Jesus says, I want to find you when I come, being faithful to what I've given you to do. And then he says, and blessed is that servant who gives and feeds my other household servants, feeds them at the proper time. That's what he says. And I love that word. And I thought about that, and I thought it would be easy to avoid controversial subjects But you know, the fact is, Christians are asking questions. How do we live in these days? What do we do as individual Christians, as a church? How are we to respond to what all is going on in our world? And so when I think about giving the bread at the proper time, it's to say there are times when we have to speak into situations that are difficult and that, yes, will be controversial, But we have to think biblically. I'll tell you this. Of all the things that I could tell you, I read an article that said this the other day. It said, we have never lived in a time with more information at our fingertips, and yet we have never struggled more to know what is true. 
So in other words, we get all of this information, and one of the things I hear Christians saying is, I just don't know which information to believe, and I'm going to tell you which information to believe. Right there. That's, that's what I'm called to feed to Jesus' people. This right here. Okay? So, with all that said, it is amazing how relevant the Bible is, and every bit of it's true, and it's the Word of God, and it speaks into our contemporary, contemporary situation. If we'll open it, if we'll hear it, if we'll listen to it, if we'll heed it. Okay? So, so the Bible... There you go. That's the preface to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, thinking about the distinction between church and state. And I want to recap a little bit about the situation at Corinth because it's been several months since I've talked about this. It's obvious when you read 1 Corinthians that that church is fractured, divided, and confused. Some are following this, some are following that, and, and it's caused an uproar in the church. And Paul is writing to that church. Now, first of all, they've written some letters to him and said, what do we do about this? What do we do about that? There are at least six questions that the Corinthian church asked Paul. And I think you can see this as you're reading through 1 Corinthians. He says, now about this issue that you wrote, now about this, now about that. He's answering a specific question, but 1 Corinthians 1 through 6, I actually think what he's doing is the, the guys who were carrying the letter from the Corinthian church to Paul Stephanus, and there was a couple of other ones, they say, here's the letter and the things they're wanting to ask you about, but let me tell you something. This is going on over there, and this and this, and it is a mess. And they begin to tell him what's going on at Corinth. And I think, in, in chapter 6, I think ends that address where Paul is saying, i got to clear up, clear up some things that y'all aren't asking about before I get to the things that you are. 1 Corinthians 6 is one of those things. But, but remember this, that Paul had pastored and planted this church, and you're going, how did it get to be such a mess so quickly? Because the culture shifted rapidly. And if you don't believe how quickly a situation can change in a church and spawn all sorts of questions that you've never thought about, think about the year 2020. A year ago, we weren't asking the questions that seemed to consume all of our time today so things have shifted what has shifted what's gone on in Corinth I don't know I don't know if you remember this but but Corinth was changing over from a traditional Greek society to now it's becoming Roman and there are changes in ethics and customs and beliefs and the culture ideological shift wholesale has occurred it's shifted not only that there was an influx of immigrants There was an influx of money, a lot of wealth, and it was creating class disparity. There was probably some racism going on in that day. There was a dynamic. There was a a, a power shift going on, and and it's causing people to be upset, compounded by the fact that there were grain shortages. Uh, uh, Bruce Winter, who wrote the book after Paul left Corinth, I quoted that, and I think he's got the best, best explanation historically what was going on in that church. It's just... Mass upheaval, political shift, cultural shift. They were worried about their food, where it was going to come from. They were grabbing theirs. They were, they were concerned about their home, about the things that were changing. There was a proliferation of ungodly entertainment as these Olympic-type games, the Isthmian games, came in. All sorts of God, ungodly entertainment 
came in as an influx, and it's influencing the church. There are Christians taking part in those things. So lots going on in that church. And it's obvious when you think about all those things, how many questions they have. Can we do this? Can we do that? Well, so-and-so is saying that Christians should do this. Paul, can we do that? Lots going on there. But 1 Corinthians 6, I want to approach it from the angle of the distinctions between church and state. And this is a relevant issue that the church is facing today, I think. So I want to walk through this with you. We're not going to, be a, we're not going to go line by line, word by word. I want you to see the big picture here under two categories, the dilemma at Corinth and then the distinctions between church and state that we see. First of all, the dilemma. Let's look at the evidence by reading through 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 11. We're going to look at what was going on that has caused this mess that Paul now addresses in 1 Corinthians 6. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? And I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? But brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. Actually then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor the thieves, nor the covetous, or drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. The dilemma. Let's look at the evidence. Let's see what's going on at the church in Corinth. Number one, church members were suing one another in civil courts. They're suing one another, brother against brother. They're taking it to the Roman courts there in Corinth, which, by the way, were known to be extremely extremely corrupt. Bribery and all kinds of things going on. So they're suing one another. And Paul addresses this specifically in verses 1 through 4. But really, he begins to get underneath the issue. Yeah, you're suing everybody, each other in the pagan courts. But the issue underneath, I think, is that the Christians have placed more faith in ungodly governmental courts than they have in their own church. That's, that's an issue. He says, underneath that, the reason you're doing that is you have more faith. Maybe we could say you have more in common with the way you think, with the world, than you do with the righteous and godly and wise people in the church. And that is an issue. And he says, do you, do you not know that Christians in the world to come, now we don't know exactly what this looks like, but he says, you're going to help Jesus. You're going to help God judge the world and even angels. Maybe fallen angels, but you're going to help judge. And he says, and if that's the case, are you not competent as a church 
to decide some hard issues with it, with, among yourself. That's what he's saying. He's, you put more faith in the pagan system than you do with your own brethren. And that's a problem. And I think that's a problem that we see even today. We're finding more in common out there than in here. And Paul addresses that. Listen, we need to be competent as a church to help people sort through messy situations. And I'll be the first to say a lot of times I go, <laughs> not my problem. That's, man, that, that's messy. That's messy. But the church is supposed to do those kind of things. Paul is not saying, he doesn't say there's no place for lawsuits. There's civil cases and there's criminal cases. Okay? He's not saying there are not times when something bad has happened and it's a criminal offense and it needs to go there. But these were frivolous, silly civil lawsuits according to Bruce Winter's research. So the church members are suing one another in the civil courts because they didn't have faith in their own people. They had faith in the corrupt government system. Verses 5 through 6, part of the dilemma is the church had relinquished its responsibility to arbitrate its own affairs. Remember, the church at Corinth was divided. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Jesus. you got all of these different sects and groups there was the wealthy, there was the poor. They were having different Lord's Supper services because they couldn't get along, they didn't like each other, and they're totally divided. And the church should have been able to step in and say, let's, let's fix this, let's deal with this issue. But it got so bad that they had avoided and relegated their responsibility that it ended up having to go to these secular courts. Lawsuits against one another. You know what? Jesus taught his disciples how to arbitrate affairs. Didn't he? Conflict resolution according to Jesus. If you have something against your brother or he has something against you, go to him. Go to him. Go, go talk to him. Tell him what you're upset about. If they won't listen, what does he say? Take someone with you. Take, take a brother with you who, who can help sort out. Maybe, maybe the facts are unclear. You say it's this, you say it's that. So, so let's, let's bring in a witness, but let's keep it discreet. You know, let's not get it, make, a, make a big issue out of something that doesn't need to be. And then he says, and if it still can't be resolved, what are you supposed to do? Sue each other? Let's take it to the church. The brethren. The church should have some way of helping people deal with their impasses and their disagreements. A lot of churches do. A lot of churches don't. seems like some denominations are really good at this. Presbyterians, you know, they've got all of these kind of peacemaking strategies and synods and all this different stuff. And, um, but the church has a responsibility to deal with its own affairs and deal with, help people deal with issues so, so that we don't have to take the church's business that really could be solved here and settled here and take it into a, a pagan court and drag the name of Jesus and drag the Christian name through the mud. That's part of the dilemma. Third thing, the church had adopted an ungodly set of worldly behaviors and ethics. These people had worldly, ungodly behaviors and ethics. That's very clear in verses 7 and 8. I hope you'll look down at it as Paul addresses this. Look at it. You know, here's the deal. Here, here's what was going on apparently in the Corinthian courts. You know what it was about? It was about power and politics. 
This is, this is not me saying this. I was researching the situation at Corinth, and here's what they said. The Roman courts of law had become flooded with frivolous lawsuits such that they were nothing more than political gamesmanship and theater. It was about people taking revenge on others. If someone said something you didn't like, if they disagreed with your opinion, what did you do? You sued them. You dragged their name through the mud. You cost them money because they had, maybe had to hire a lawyer. So you just sued them. That's what you did. It was commonplace for people to file civil lawsuits to punish people that they didn't like, who had done something they didn't like, whether it was really worthy of a lawsuit or not. They wanted to discredit those who they disagreed with. This would never happen in American politics, would it? Where we... we, we Pursue litigation for no other reason than to discredit and defame and squash our political opponents. And I'm reading this, I'm going, oh my gosh. Some things never change. If you just wanted, if you wanted to, to rise to this seat of power and you knew this guy over here or this lady over here was going to run against you, well, you preempted that by suing them and, and tarnishing their name so that you could get the position that you wanted without someone else. In fact, it had a, a name. It was called enmity litigation. Enmity litigation, a way to settle scores with political opponents, to retaliate against those who have disagreed with you, or merely to hold on or to gain power and influence. Think about this. That's going on in Corinthian courts. That was what went on in that culture. It was normal. That's just what you did. And so in the Corinthian church, you've got groups who disagree about some fundamental things. They're divided into factions. We're of Paul. No, we're of Apollos. We're of Jesus. Somebody's got to win this power struggle in the church. How are we going to do it? Well, I'll tell you what let's do. Let's just sue these people. Let's say that they tarnished our name. Let's say that they said bad things against Paul and the Pauline Christians. And they began to sue one another. And it got nasty. That's what it appears. It just got nasty. They're suing one another. And I tell you, I read all of this, and I just think about how relevant this is in our day. We've got our groups and our ideas. And the way that we handle it, instead of talking rationally, going to people, dealing with it in a Christian way, we defame, we drag people's name through the mud, we assume the worst of them, they say this, we say that they said that, and this is even going on in the church today. The church has adopted ungodly ethics and morals that belonged in the world, and that's a problem. All right. So now let's see the distinction between church and state. As I read this, I think this is the root issue that Paul is addressing in Corinth, that they've lost sight of the fact that the church is a distinct and different entity. And it should have a distinctive character and set of foundational principles than the world, than the state. Now, what I am not saying today is, that there's no overlap between religion and politics. If you're going to vote as a Christian, your faith should inform that. 
If you're going to run for office, your faith should inform that. Not saying that there's no overlap between religion and politics. When we talk about the church, we are talking about a distinct organizational entity that has a distinct set of responsibilities and authorities that aren't the same as the state's. And the state does not have the church's responsibility and authority. Does that make sense? Church and state is not equivalent to religion and politics. The church, we are a distinct entity. John Meacham, in his book, American Gospel, he actually helps thinking about this issue. He was writing about Thomas Jefferson and the idea of the wall of separation between church and state. Listen to what he says. He he reiterates the same point. The wall Jefferson referred to is designed to divide church from state, not religion from politics. Woe to us if her Christianity doesn't inform our politics, all right? Church and state are distinct entities and institutions. A church is an institution for believers to gather, to worship, to order our lives together, to focus on the things that Jesus gave us to do. And the state is a collective milieu, he says, of civic and political and legal arrangements which guide the public sphere. Those are separate things. You know, James Madison, actually, the phrase distinction between church and state, James Madison wrote about that. And he said the practical distinction between religion and civil government is essential to the purity of both, as guaranteed by the Constitution of the United States. The Founding Fathers said that we need to see those things as distinct. And I'm not coming today to tell you about politics or government. I'm speaking as a pastor of a church, trying to understand how to navigate the issues that we face. And to say, what is our responsibility? Now listen, I have several realms or spheres of responsibility. As a husband, as a father, as an American citizen, and as a pastor of a church. And those are not all the same set of responsibilities, are they? No. No, they're not. They're different. So, the first thing, I need to do this briefly. I want you to get this today. I hope you'll believe this. If not, I'd love to discuss it with you. If you disagree, the church and state have distinctly different realms of authority and responsibility. And as a church, our first and foremost responsibility is to govern our affairs, not the government. Not the government. Now, I would encourage Christians to get involved in government. Run for office. Make a difference. But that's not the church's job. That's not my responsibility as a pastor to lobby and to legislate. I'm to be concerned with the governing of itself. And Paul says, deal with your issues in the church. Deal with your issues in the church. In chapter 5, you know, he's, he's dealing with the sexual immorality in the church. And he says, you need to disassociate with those immoral people. So what did they do? They went out into the world. They said, I'm not doing business with you. I'm not doing business with you. I have to disassociate from you. And yet, they were still associating with the sexually immoral within the church. Paul says, you've got that mixed up. I meant govern things in the church. No so-called believer 
should be involved in those things. And you continue to act like that's normal for a believer. But out in the world, he said, they're going to do those things. You can't pull yourself totally out of the world. We have different realms of responsibility and authority. And both are answerable to God. Both are answerable to God. We will answer to the Lord for the way that we've handled the affairs of the church. And I, above all, as a pastor. So we're in a time when people are asking the question, when does a Christian, when is civil disobedience appropriate? For individual Christians, again, that's one thing. And then for a church to collectively, officially, formally say, we are going to disobey the government. That's a question that people are facing. You heard about John MacArthur's Grace Community Church in California when the uh, California governor shut down. He said, churches cannot meet. I don't know what the number was. I don't know all the specifics. But basically, there was no way for these big churches to meet. And, and so that church, they got together, John MacArthur and the elders, and they said, we've got to respond to that. And you know what they did? They issued a statement. And they said basically that the governor of California has overstepped his realm of authority by trying to manage the church. Ecclesial authorities, the church authority is to do that, not the governor. That's what they said. And so they didn't meet for a while, and then they started meeting again. Now that's been in California. We have not yet faced that here. It's very possible that we will. And so I'm thinking through all of these things. And I think that the principle that John MacArthur and the church cited is absolutely right. There are different realms of responsibility and authority. The question is, and the one that Christians are bickering about in that situation is, but did they rightly apply that principle? Was that situation, in that situation, was that the right principle? Should they have done that? You know, we look in the Bible and we see that many times in the New Testament, Jesus did this, the early apostles did it, the early church, and down through the ages, there have been times when the secular government or people in other authorities have said, do not preach in the name of Jesus, you cannot gather, you cannot do this, and you cannot do that. And many times, I love, I mean, Peter gives, gets it exactly right. You tell me, should I obey God or, or man? When those two things are in conflict, and there is a time when the church will have to say, you're asking me to go against what God has clearly said we are to do or not to do, and I'm going to obey God rather than you. In the COVID situation, the question is, is that akin to what we see in terms of New Testament-type persecution? And that's the question. I don't think that's as clear-cut as some people are making it out to be. I'm asking the question, are they saying that you cannot preach the gospel? Are they trying to change the message? Are they trying to stifle the message? Are they saying you can't go on the airwaves? Now, again, it gets into the deal of singing together and gathering together. I get it. It's a big, hard, difficult situation. You know who's responsible for making that decision for First Baptist Church of Valley Springs? It's not John MacArthur, and it's not Gavin Newsom, and it's not Joe Biden. It's us. As a church, we will have to face those situations together. And hey, this may just be the warm-up act for what's to come. Probably it is. And I think that's one of the things that the Lord is doing in these days is trying to insert a little steel in my spine, <laughs> in all of us. 
and say, you know, we have to deal with these issues as a church together. The church has to govern its own affairs. We have responsibility here in the church. We have to take that seriously. Secondly, lastly, the church and the state operate from distinctly different moral and ethical standards. When I say there's a distinction between church and state, there's a different foundation, there's a different character, there's a different set of morals and behaviors. The church is different. Someone say amen to that. Sometimes that's hard to do because you go, really, we're not that different. But Paul says, you should be different. Look at his outrage in verse 5. He says, I say this to your shame. By the way, that's outrage. It's outrageous in the Apostle Paul's mind that the church is behaving just like the world in the midst of conflict. He said, that is shameful. Brothers, this not, should not be. You've adopted worldly wisdom and tactics and weapons that do not belong to the people of God. We don't solve our problems in the church just like the world does. So in Corinth, in the culture, they slander one another. They drag their name through the mud. They sue one another. What did they do in the church? Same thing. And he says, I think what verse 7 is teaching is there should be a fundamental difference in your approach to conflict. The key difference, the grace that should be evident in the life of a Christian. When we have conflicts with one another, there should be forgiveness and forbearance. Thinking the best before we jump to conclusions. Not thinking the worst and writing people off. It should be different be able to work out our issues without slandering, suing, and slinging mud on other people in the church. Those tactics do not belong to Christians. His point is the kingdom of God is different than the kingdom of this world. It's different. Different precepts. Different set of values. We start from an entirely different point where the world is saying, I want to win by any means possible. You know, the way of Jesus is self-sacrifice, forgiveness, grace, patience. It's there. And really, this is a gospel issue. This is a gospel issue. He gets down to the point of saying, if you persist in this behavior, it looks like to me that you are not one who belongs in the kingdom of God. And he gives this big sin list, and we're going to come back to that next week. He gives this big sin list. He said, people that are doing these things, they do not belong in the kingdom of God. And those behaviors do not belong and should not be associated with the people of God. And there's one that seems like it doesn't belong in that list. And you've got all of these heinous sexual sins and, and uh, thieving and covetousness. And then he has revilers. Revilers are people that are verbally abusive to others. He says, that doesn't belong in the kingdom of God. And he gets down to the heart of the matter in verse 11. All of those things I listed, Paul says, such were some of you, but they shouldn't belong to you now. Because something happened in your life, didn't it? You were washed. 
That means there came a point where by the blood of Jesus and the cross of Christ, you said, man, sin is deadly and horrific. I want to repent of that. And you're washed coming under the blood of Jesus. And he says you were sanctified. And I think that attaches to the work of the Holy Spirit. And you've grown. And you're becoming more like Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, not by self-effort, but because the Holy Spirit comes to reside in you. You were washed, you were sanctified, and guess what? You were justified. You were acquitted. Your name was cleared because of what Jesus did, not because of some lawsuit in the Corinthian court. I feel like today many people just want to justify themselves. Hey, folks, if you're a Christian, you're already justified. Jesus took care of you. He gave you the best name. He cleared your record. And you don't have to fight and struggle and kick and beat other people down and go to law and to court to gain position and authority. And the political realm seems to get worse every day. We've got to be careful that we don't take that as normal for a Christian. We need to rest in the finished work of Christ. We need to realize that as a church, we've got a much higher agenda than politics. Much higher. That's what we've been preaching about, about the gospel. This week I, I preached the funeral of my grandmother And uh, she, she did die in a, a nursing home of, of COVID. She was relatively well. She got COVID. I said, she's doing all right. Seems pretty mild. Had a heart attack. Died a couple days later. So I go back home, and I was trying to piece together getting ready for that funeral, trying to piece together her life. Help me understand about my nana. That's what we called her. And uh, I know I've been long. I apologize. Stick with me for just a second. Mom, tell me about tell me about Nana's life. She was grew up over in Fox, Arkansas, and uh, the firstborn of eight children. Born small enough, they said that she'd fit in a shoebox, and a teacup would fit on her head. I'm like, who puts her kid in a shoebox to see if they fit? But whatever. I don't know if that's what she slept in. Seriously, in the 30s, maybe that was her bed. I don't know. That's weird. And. Uh, She had eight, uh, eight siblings, or was eight, I can't remember now. And her father would, would come home long enough to uh, produce another child, and then he would leave. Seriously, that's the way they put it. And he would leave and disappear again. Continued to do this until eight were born, and then he said to the family, see you later. I've had enough of this. And my nana was in eighth grade, and she had to quit school so she could help her mother take care of those other kids. I can tell you, uh, uh, great-grandpa's name was Mud around family reunions. He abandoned his family. She gave up her education to see to her siblings. She left and and went on. Uh, She was stuck there in Fox, Arkansas. And Mom said many times she would just go out on the front porch and scream, someone, anyone, come take me out of Fox, Arkansas. 
And she said, I was serious. If anyone would have accepted me and taken me, I'd have gone. She walked down to a little revival one night and heard about a father who loved her. She accepted Jesus, became a Christian. She saw to it that her kids were in church, and eventually her husband went to church and got saved. He became a pastor. They traveled around, did all kinds of things. Went through a lot of hardship in her life still as an adult. Her and my grandpa ended up uh, divorced years later, and uh, she was alone. Didn't have much, hardly anything. Really, her kids took care of her for the most part financially. Her old deadbeat father emerged on the scene. I remember this. I was a kid. And he said, I don't know if she talked to him in decades, if you'll come live with me and take care of me, I'm dying. I'll leave you what little I've got, a truck and a part of a house. So she did. She moved, picked up, left her family, went to take care of a father who had abandoned her. She did that for years. And we would go down, and man, that was a mean old cuss. One day he had had enough of her. He said, you're not doing your job. Get out. She's probably, in, at that point in her 60s, has given up her home, gone to care for this man for years. He said, I'm not going to give you anything. Get out. She did not take him to court, though I imagine she would have won. She didn't seek to tread down on him or to beat him down. She packed her bags. My parents went and got her. She came. She found a new place to live. Basically had nothing for the rest of her life. She was one of the most joyful, at-peace people you have ever seen in your life. And I thought about how she had every right to hate that man. I mean... You wouldn't have blamed her if she had resorted to violence, I think. I'm surprised one of the kids didn't. She didn't sue him. She just went on. She just went on. Didn't seek to justify herself, but had pity on his soul. And I tell you, preaching that funeral, outside there at the grave. We weren't all stirred up about all of the wrongs. What we remembered was the beauty of her life and the forgiveness and the grace and the self-sacrifice that was evident. It was the thread that traced through her life. I'll tell you what, that was the glory of Jesus in her life for all of us who were watching to see. And it was amazing. And I'll tell you another thing. We didn't sit around her casket griping about who didn't get their COVID vaccine or who wore a mask or didn't wear a mask. Because at that point, it did not matter one iota. But I'll tell you what we took comfort in. She knew Jesus. I know where she is. Her life and her witness and her profession of faith gave clear evidence the grace of Jesus that she had radically experienced and transformed her life. That's what matters. Church, 
sure we have something to say about what's going on in the world. We should have something to say. We need to be salt and light as Christians. But the church's job is a much higher calling than lawsuits and political wrangling. We have the message of eternal life that makes a difference for eternity. Let's see that we understand that's a distinct calling that we have as a church. Be careful not to blur those lines and lose sight of something so good and so important for something that's so temporal and ultimately not our job. Bow with me if you would at this time. If you're here today and uh, you've never trusted Christ, you've never had your sins forgiven by coming to the blood of Jesus, the cross of Jesus, repenting of sins and turning to Him, you need to do that. I'll tell you, one day you will face the Lord and give an account for your life. And you'll need to be able to plead the blood of Jesus that forgives every sin. If you need to do that today, you come at this time. Let me pray with you. Let me lead you. Let me help you understand the gospel. I'd love to meet with you after church if we need to do that and talk about that. Christian, today, would you look with me with humility and prayerfulness at this passage and consider the way that we walk And consider who we reflect. And consider what has been done for us. Grace upon grace. Forgiveness. And new life by the blood of Jesus. Let's walk that out for others to see in our lives. Would you commit to that today if you're here? If you need to make a decision in this time, if you want to pray, you've got someone to pray for, you come at this time. Whatever you need to do, we're just going to take a minute. Seek the Lord and respond. Father, we thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your church. It sharpens one another. God, I'm thankful that I don't have to figure these things out on my own, that you've given your word and you've given your people collective wisdom. Help us to lean on each other, to love each other in these days, to value your church more than we ever have before. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, let me introduce a couple of special folks to you this morning. Y'all come up here. Cody and Emily Crunkleton, they are coming and desiring to uh, join First Baptist Church of Valley Springs by transfer of letter from a, another church here in the area. And uh, actually, there's three of them coming today, or two and a half. Cody, 
and Emily, and I asked her if that was little Ricky, and um, it's Baby C. So, uh, but but Baby C can't join yet, but uh, these folks can. So if you rejoice and they're coming, you're glad that they want to be a part of the FBC FBCVS family. Say amen. amen. All right. So they're gonna they're gonna uh, go outside and and. Uh, And we'll ask uh, Rick and Deb to stand with them, and, and uh, y'all welcome them into the family. Let me pray for us. Any other announcements before we go? Y'all can head that way. Any other announcements? Got it covered? Father, we thank you for your grace. Thank you for this family. I pray for Cody, for Emily, and for this baby. God, joining together with us, help us to come alongside, to love them, to encourage, to support and to be a part of their family as they are a part of ours. We pray for uh, their pregnancy, and we pray for a safe delivery in the days to come, and we pray for our church that we would not lose sight of all of these good things and the joys that are right here before us because there are indeed difficulties in this day. Help us to approach life with joy and the grace and the knowledge of forgiveness in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed.